the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to this week's Trade the Back podcast, brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. I'm joined, as always, by Messrs Phil Green and Enda Higgins to talk about all that is happening in the world of football. How are you, lads? Good evening, Kev. Good evening, Enda. All good, guys. How are you? So we have a lot to talk about this week. We'll be touching on this evening's Champions League draw that has played up some massive ties to look forward to over the next couple of months. VAR has reared its ugly head once again after a weekend of chaos in the Premier League, which has left us powerless to avoid it. And we'll be looking to, at some of the movers and shakers as the transfer window draws to a close early next week. Later on, we'll be chatting to sports writer Ger Deegan about all things Manchester City and Pep Guardiola and their outlook for the season after a less than convincing start to their campaign over the past few weeks. But to kick things off, lads, let's talk about the Champions League group stage draw, which was this evening. And it was a tasty one. Um, Sloan and Juventus drawn together, pitting Messi and Ronaldo against each other in the same group for the first time ever. Bayern Atletico is sure to be a feisty one. Liverpool and Ajax meet for the first time since 1966, which kind of blew my mind when I saw that. And United meet PSG once again, as well as Leipzig and a long-distance Turkish side for good measure. That looks like a tough one on paper, Enda. Yeah, like just looking across all the groups, it's probably one of the most balanced draws I've probably ever seen. Um, but just for United, yeah, I mean, on paper, it's certainly very difficult. But I think those three teams might suit their style a little bit. We know that PSG, they could play a very open game and haven't started the season the best and have had their own issues with um, coronavirus in the squad. Leipzig, um, you know, still recovering from losing Timo Werner, which is a big loss. They've obviously brought in Hang from Salzburg, but he's not quite at the same level yet. And again, we'll play a very open game, um, a very direct 4-4-2 style, as we saw against Spurs last season. But again, I think that could play into United's hands. And then um, you're quite clever saying a trip to Turkey as opposed to trying to pronounce this. So fair play to you. I was, I was hoping you'd bail me out there. But um, <laughs> the interesting thing about it is it's probably the most modern group you could possibly think of because PSG, they were founded in the 70s and then Leipzig and uh, the Turkish right. crowd are less than 20 years old each. So, um, you know, not quite the Liverpool Ajax history that you were talking about there at the start, but listen, overall, I think, you know, we might as well see what United are made of in the Champions League this season. So I'm not unhappy with it. I think those three teams, they'll play a very open game um, and it could suit United. Those are the teams that actually traditionally suit United um, under Solskjaer a little bit more, but, you know, I'd absolutely be taking second place out of that group uh, straight away, happily. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be a tricky one for sure, especially if nothing happens in the next few days that we'll get on to later on. You avoided Bayern and Real Madrid, but was there any kind of, oh, here we go again, kind of reaction to, to seeing PSG pop up? 
Not really. I mean, that was probably one of United's best nights <laughs> in the last seven years, you know. <laughs> so, um, certainly no shame being reminded of that one. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, United were horribly outplayed by them at Old Trafford, and that was the big concern. And, you know, the match in Paris, Neymar was out, and Bappe had, you know, one of his worst games for PSG on the night. And then, obviously, the penalty at the end... Uh, it, Actually, it incorporates everything we're going to talk about tonight in terms of <laughs> Champions League and VAR. Yeah. Um, but no, not really deja vu. I'm actually looking forward to that one. Um, there'll be a lot of, obviously, Herrera talk amongst United Twitter people who still convince themselves that he <laughs> didn't refuse a nice United contract to go on over 200k a week for five years in Paris to sit on the bench behind Verratti. But anyways, uh, it is what it is. So I, I think it's actually... You know, mm. it, it's an okay one. I'd be much more concerned about facing somebody like Bayern. Not so much Real Madrid because they've started the season slowly under Zidane as they usually do. Quite pragmatic, but I'd have no interest in facing Bayern at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> um, or Juventus, really. To be, um, mm. So PSG is okay with me for now. But, uh, you know, I'd hope to get second place in that group. Yeah. Phil, um, on Liverpool's... Group IX, Atalanta, Michelin, um, seems like a, a group born out of the Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking that it's kind of like some of the best run clubs at the different rungs of European football, really. Um, like the the data science team that could get together um, across all the, you know, you normally have the managers in each other's offices for a glass of wine afterwards. Uh, I'd imagine that this uh, data science team would be taken in. Uh, their opponents in, in for a nice glass of wine and a couple of spreadsheets after the games. Um, it's a good group, like loads of football in it. Mm. Um, like Atalanta obviously jumps out because of how exciting they they were last season and have been uh, under Gasparini. Um, but like from a selfish point of view, after a couple of years of kind of iffy groups for Liverpool, it looks like one that they probably should top, shouldn't have much problem at worst getting out of pretty easily. Um, and they've avoided like there was some, you know, you always see these things going around the worst possible draw, but like they could have got Barcelona into Milan or Leipzig uh, and and like someone like Monchin Gladbach out of Pot 4. So there's much worse draws out there and they're interesting. And um, just a pity for, for yeah. fans who won't get to go to um, Bergamo for loads of nice uh, Italian ham. <laughs> I actually thought of you when I saw Atlanta because I, I know you had a little bit of a, a soft spot for them last year. Um, and they're kind of. I feel like they're going to fill the the Napoli spot that we've had um, for last season or two in kind of a tricky Italian side that causes problems. Um, I mean, they score goals for fun, and obviously they had that unbelievable Champions League run there over the summer. So I don't think they're. I think out of the the pot three, they they're probably on paper the toughest side, even with Leipzig thrown in there, given given their form at the moment um, in Syria uh, and in Europe now, they seem fairly well established. Um, and then, kind of extend the year, the year or two before that, were were my little soft spot um, with their Champions League draw. So, I think I think on paper it's a it's a pretty exciting group. Um, lots of football, like you said. Um, it'd be interesting to 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 get a little bit closer to um to the Michelin, who we've kind of heard about over the past couple of years with with their ownership and how they do things. So, I think getting them in a group with Liverpool now will kind of bring them into the mainstream and. Uh, I'm sure they've caused plenty of problems as well. Um, in terms of the other groups, kind of, I suppose the main one sticking out is Juventus Barcelona. Um, the first time ever Messi and Ronaldo have uh, clashed in a group stage. 
Um, so that's going to be a kind of all eyes on that. Um, and the, do, you, do you see fireworks there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, from a seeding perspective, Juventus and Barcelona are um, far ahead of the other two teams in that group. I actually thought Group B looks to be the most interesting on paper. Um, yeah. Madrid, Donetsk, mm-hmm. Inter and Mönchengladbach. I mean, Mönchengladbach played some incredible football last season. They've um, some very good young players, Torem, Neuhaus, um, Breland Bolo as well. So I think that's a group and Inter just have started the season, kind of picked up from last year, you know, with the 4-3 against Fiorentina at the weekend. Um, but just going back to Group G, I think Juventus and Barcelona, mm. while it's probably a standout tie in terms of all the group games, I think they'll comfortably finish ahead of Kiev um, and the hungry right. side. I'll, I'll give it a go, Ferran Chavaros. <laughs> um, but, you know, I... I wouldn't be, you know, overly su- surprised to see um, Juventus and Barcelona finish with something like twelve points each in that group. Um, I think Group E, F, and B look look far more balanced, and even Bayern coming up against Atletico at this stage of the competition, and Salzburg are are quite tricky as well in Group A for those two teams. So, like I said at the start, it's it's, it's very balanced across five or six groups there. Uh, group yeah. G um, and probably Group F with Zenit and Dortmund um, in with Lazio and Bruges. Those those look to be the two groups. And sorry, Group B as well with Sevilla and Chelsea with um, Krasnodar and, and Rennes. But there's definitely four or five groups there that will be very, very competitive this year. So uh, it's just a shame that there's no fans, obviously. But I think it could be one of the most competitive group stages we've seen for quite quite some time. There's no obvious whipping boys really across any of these groups. Yeah, Group F kind of has um, the hipster football vibe over it with uh, with Dortmund and Lazio. Um, that's kind of going to be a imagine um, one to keep half an eye on. Um, doesn't really have huge games in it, but um, no doubt it'll throw up a, a few uh, interesting results. Um, group A then before we and Liverpool thrown in there as well. Problems for Liverpool last last year. They obviously um. Kind of lose players every every summer, but they they're they're still quite a, a decent side. Um, but I think if you're Bayern, you're probably looking at Atletico and thinking, Do you know what, you know, this is probably the best year we've we, we could have got Atletico. Um, and coming off a Champions League win, fairly decent start to the to the Bundesliga. Um, even with Luis Suarez, um, and Diego Costa, who's, you know, pushing on now as much as they uh, are able to put themselves about, but. I think you're looking at Bayern uh, as possibly favourites to defend at the moment. Phil, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, like like they lost their first game in the whole calendar year of mm. 2020 there at the weekend. It's it's hard to look past them at the minute. And like you said, Atletico pushed them. They actually had them in the group a couple of years ago and came out, I think, as group winners that year. Like you said, Salzburg, really tricky team, great manager, but have been a bit asset strict. So you'd imagine they're not going to have much problem getting out of the group. Uh, and then it's kind of where, where it shakes out from that in terms of the draw and who finishes first and second in some of those trickier groups like Juve Barcelona straight away is going to be a tricky opponent for any group winner. Um, so like if if Bayern were to get caught with Juve, for example, it could flip. But at this remove, you're kind of looking at Bayern, you're looking at City, despite their obvious blocks, somehow again drawn like, you know, Leeds of United under 14s in their group, I think they're. Um, I think it's their, it's their toughest away game uh, like Porto, Olympiacos and Marseille as as your Champions League group is you know pretty fantastic so you have to fancy Bayern City like I suppose uh, you go Liverpool again and 
as the kind of three most kind of settled teams. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's very as as I said, it's very balanced and it's very interesting. Um, I think the group stages will be good this year. Some years they can be a bit off and a bit and a bit easy to predict, but I think I think this year they look pretty engaging. Yeah, even um, looking at Group E and Chelsea's group, Sevilla, um, Krasnodar and Wren, and obviously kind of the spotlight is on Frank Lampard at the moment and how they've got off uh, to a start uh, this season. But they're the kind of games where you wouldn't be surprised if, if you look through the results at the end of a, a Tuesday or Wednesday evening and, and Chelsea have drawn to, to Wren or to Sevilla. Um, it's kind of really evenly balanced, um, uh, like you said, as with the other groups. Yeah, especially if Ren, like Ren are top of, of League on at the minute now. PSG had that weird start, like Enda mentioned. But if Ren can keep up even a decent pace, um, they mm. could make them very interesting in a group that otherwise looks like it's probably going to be Sevilla and Chelsea. But if, if Ren can make themselves, make their presence felt, that, that could be even an interesting one. Yeah, and just for Chelsea going to Russia, you know, there's just that always. Mm. <laughs> you always have one. You always have one no, group past the Russian, you know, like with the snow yeah. and the orange football back in the day, you know. So that was always just mentally always a tougher game to to kind of process. So I think it'll be a pretty balanced group that one as well. Sevilla, as we know in Europe, they're a, a much bigger challenge than they are domestically. They're actually drawing nil all with Levante as we're going to. Uh, stoppage time here which is quite a poor result for them but I think um, they know what they're about in Europe Chelsea are still trying to find their feet and a lot of pressure on Lampard at the moment so again it's one of those groups where there's certainly no given in it Um, and again it's one of those where there's a lot of balance there In fairness Sevilla might be uh, aiming for um, the highest place third place Um, (laughs) and get into get into the more familiar rounds of the Europa League Leds, Ver, um, I tried to put the vote down whenever we're uh, discussing kind of rundowns for the podcast. Um, I think I'm at the point now where if something happens or there's a discussion on it somewhere, I just kind of zone out, which is probably less than ideal for this kind of format. Um, but I mean, I, I couldn't even bring myself to to read Ken Early's piece this week, even reviews everywhere, um, which is kind of where I am at the moment with Ver. The handball thing has been really frustrating. Um, I said it here last year that if everyone knew that the technology review would be so minute, I think there would have been less clamour to get it in. Um, I think goal line technology is great. I think offsides, fair enough. Um, if it was a little bit more transparent and we could hear the discussion in the in the VAR centre when they're um, drawing the lines across the screen, I just think it would make it a little bit more clear to the viewer. Um, I think that would... Red cards and penalties, I could get on board with. But the rewriting of the rules now to allow VAR to pick up incidents that are happening a handful of times a game and turning them into penalties, it's it's, it's changed the game this year and had such a tangible effect, unlike any introduction of technolo- technology has done until now. And I don't think it's been really in an overly positive way either. Phil... We might be kind of flogging a dead horse on this debate, but are you any further one side or the other on fair in its current format, uh, given the kind of the, the changes to the handball rule that has, it has put it under the microscope again? Yeah, it's interesting because like, I, I was very much in favour of the theory of VAR before it came in. I thought it would be a great idea. And I think in general, 
if you if you line up all the things it's done to the game, improving and disproving, I think it's probably still in credit. And um, where it gets messy, exactly like you said, is that the rules of the game are having to be redrawn to allow for the fact that beforehand, uh, when refs were relying on themselves and, and the fourth officials, um, it was fine to to say that there was a, a degree of subjectivity in that. But when everything is captured on camera now, there has to be some sort of more standardised way of, of making these sort of decisions. And the way they've gone about it just doesn't seem to make a whole heap of sense um, in terms of they're talking about the the arms needing to be in the natural silhouette. And that doesn't include jumping for the ball like we've seen with Eric Dyer or with Joel Ward with his arms down by his side. Um, the un- there's two things, I suppose, that, that go in favour of, uh, of the football authorities. Number one, it's that this handball rule was in place in Europe and for the Champions League last year and the world and the sky didn't fall in. So we still love the Champions League as much as ever. And yes, the penalty instances in Italy and Spain shot way up, but it wasn't the death of football. As Gareth Crooks reckoned this handball rule was a bigger threat to football than COVID, which, you know, is a joke. But um, also, as as the week has gone on, the Premier League and the FA have gotten clearance from, uh, from IFAB that they can interpret it more generously, even as closely or as soon as this weekend. So the likes of the Joel Ward penalty or the Lindelof penalty from earlier in the season likely won't be given from now on because Premier League officials are going to be allowed to interpret a natural position uh, with the arms down by the side more leniently than the rules allow. Uh, and they're even petitioning for the dire one to, to have some sort of leniency in it. So, so the Premier League aren't standing for it. They're aware that this is the problem because it is a, like the dire one stood out to me. It was a nonsense. Like I, I just don't understand how a fella jumping for the ball can have the ball nodded onto the back of his arm, facing the opposite way, and get penalised. But it looks like they are actually addressing it. Um, it's just how they actually arrive at something that mirror, that marries subjectivity with standardisation. Probably still needs a bit of a bit of balancing out. Yeah, one of the big issues I've found with it, especially with the handball this season, is uh, the referees have been encouraged to go over to the screen, which I agree with. But then they're shown this very slow motion replay. So for the Lindelof yeah. one, for example, uh, I can't remember who the referee was, but he was he went over to the screen and it showed exactly what he was seeing. And it was slowed down, must have been about 80%. And you just see his arm go up, the ball's, the shot's taken and it hits his arm. And then he gives the penalty and you're kind of thinking, well, if that was shown in full time, there's just absolutely no way that would be given. So I just think they need to figure that part out a bit. Um, and to a lesser extent, you see it with some uh, red cards as well uh, and other challenges for penalties where the referee is asked to look at the screen and then they're only shown these slow motion replays. So what I would be a big advocate of is the ref seeing the replay in, full t- in real time uh, and then making their decision. I think that would help them out a lot and that would cut out a lot of the, the kind of 50-50 or, or debatable ones because if it looks a foul in real time, then it usually is. If it doesn't, it isn't. That's the way I, w- I always would have seen it. Um, and then obviously uh, they've brought in this extra rule as well, where it's, if it hits your sleeve, it's not going to be given. So you think of Dubai won against Bournemouth last year, for example, where he tried to control it on his chest. It hit the top of his shoulder and we had two or three minutes of, you know, is it going to be given? Is it not? And it eventually was. So that wouldn't be given this year. So they are trying to improve it, but it's just... It's happening extremely slowly. In fairness, it's not just the Premier League. Uh, La Liga and Syria have had big issues with this. I mean, there was a match last year in La Liga, I remember, Mallorca against Atletico Bilbao, and, and you know, uh, the ball was hit against the guy's arm 
literally a metre away from him. It was down by his side and the penalty was given. Um, and Fiorentina got a penalty like that at the start of the last season as well. So that led to this culture of just everything being appealed and pressure on referees. And then they have to go over and look and then they see these slow motion replays and it just it, it became all very tedious. So I think that is the biggest issue. I, I still am very much in favour of VAR. Um, I do hate the ones where we have to see the lines across the screen and if somebody's toes off by a millimetre, we discussed <laughs> this last year, Kev, uh, where I was convinced a Bayern goal against um, Orby Leipzig two years ago shouldn't have been given and or should have been given and yet it wasn't. I might have had a bet on Bayern at the time, but um, <laughs> that's that's neither here nor there. But, um, you know, as Phil said, they are trying to fix it. It just... It's just a shame that these things had to happen. I mean, the dire one especially is just... Mm. I mean, if that was given against me in the last minute of a game, as much as I enjoy seeing Mourinho drop points as much as anybody else, I mean, that's just... That's never going to be a penalty. It's just, you know, it, he's not even looking at the ball. His back is turned. It's just... It can, it can never be given. Um, so I, I hope they learn from that and hope we don't see any penalties like that the rest of the season because that's just... You know, it's pointless even trying to debate it if those decisions are going to be given. Yeah. Like yourself, I was kind of really frustrated last year when the referees didn't use the um, the sideline screen at all, really. And now that they're kind of using it more often, I thought that would be... Um, I, I, I thought the referees who use the screen would kind of see the common sense um, side of it and they'd be more relatable to you know players actions and you know they can decipher um, deliberate action from from accidental um, but it hasn't really worked at all um, and some of the handballs we're gone so far away from what is and isn't a deliberate deliberate handball that pretty much everything has been given um, and it's kind of disappointing then to see the referees who I'm sure deep down they look at those situations no matter how slow down or how um how, how slow motion they are that you know it's not really, it's not a penalty at the end of the day um so i mean will, the changes um that phil mentioned are made over the next couple of weeks i suppose we'll have to wait and see at, at least some action has been done um but i just think it's it's so frustrating that you know we, we we've waited this long for for technology to come in and there's still so much uncertainty around it and there's still so much kind of from finding faults in offsides and um certain situations with penalties and red cards to this situation now we're pretty much given a penalty or two every single game yeah i think an interesting thing about var as well is the world cup was kind of seen as the big trial for it and there really wasn't any handballs for some reason in the world cup (laughs) there was a few kind of iffy penalties maybe the griezmann one against australia sticks out and and a couple of others but there was nothing really too dramatic that happened throughout the world cup which was quite surprising and now every single week in the seems to be something i mean there was that uh there was that match day last year towards the end of the season where they came out and said afterwards that they got penalty decisions wrong in all four matches you know it was the Villa one against Fernandez against United there was uh, Bournemouth against Spurs and the other two decisions that were made that day um, and it was just a disaster for them you know so um, listen it is what it is I'm still all for VAR one thing I did notice in the Liverpool matches they did seem to be making a concerted effort to make decisions quicker I thought the Jota goal could have been looked at for two or three minutes, but they just kind of accepted it and moved on. And, and the same with the Liverpool opener as well. So mm. one thing I do feel about VR is it still needs to be timely. 
um, because this thing of three or four minutes waiting around for a decision and the referee doing the drama of holding the thing to his ear, even though it's already there, just to show everybody he's listening even harder than he normally would. You know, it's that's that's just not going to benefit anybody. So um, I felt not not that a clock should be brought in, but the quicker decisions can be made, even though obviously you hope for the right one in the end, but um, I, I still would like it to be used in a timely manner as well, just for the, for the pace of the game, not to be stopped completely. Yeah. So I felt it was interesting uh, the Liverpool game during the week that um, you know there was no kind of time wasted and kick off and off we go again so that's something I would hopefully we see going forward as well Definitely and the instant um, in the United Palace game a couple of weeks back whereby was it Palace missed a penalty and um, Hebda Gate had been off his line and there was like a minute or two of play before Ver called it all the way back to be retaken Um that kind of stuff like you you really want to avoid that yeah I mean the problem is the inconsistency there I mean we've seen a lot of goalkeepers come off their line um, actually the same match I was talking about there a few minutes ago Bilbao against Mallorca last season the keeper actually saved that one but he was off his line but again it wasn't brought back so I've never fully understood the keeper having to have a millimetre of their stud on the line. I mean, I think penalty is such a big advantage to the opposition anyway. Um, but again, it's, it's part of the rules and it, and it is what it is. Um, but yeah, that was that was a very frustrating one, the De Gea one. His first penalty save in the league, I think, since Leighton Baines in 2014. So <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so from a United perspective, it, it didn't do anything for me now, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> Let's transfer window closes next Tuesday um, and it's going to be a busy few days for some teams whether you're Liverpool who need to offload some guys on the periphery of the squad or someone like Manchester United trying to get Jadon Sancho Usman Dembele maybe Alex Tellez and maybe even Edison Cavani over the line in time Enda are you at all confident of Sancho or maybe Dembele happening um, over the next couple of days? Not really, no. Definitely not Dembele. He's apparently he already turned down a move to Liverpool earlier in the window. So if you're going to turn down Liverpool, I can't see a really queuing Fernando's in the Trafford Centre now in the next couple of months. <laughs> but um, and I think he really wants to make a go over to Barcelona. He's had three really serious hamstring injuries in the last two years there. So I feel like because of how much effort he put in to get that move originally, you know, pretty much going on strike at Dortmund. I I don't think there's any chance of him leaving Barcelona. And it wouldn't even make sense anyways. I mean, uh, outside of Messi, Fatty and Griezmann, they really don't have any other options for that front three. So I think they need him as well. So that one um, is no chance for me. Sancho, you know, did miss the match last night with a bad cough, obviously. So that was slightly more interesting. Rumours that he wasn't at training today were incorrect. So they're still trying, but if they're not going to pay the 120 million, that's a no-go. I think they'll definitely get a left back in for sure, um, which even though it wouldn't be a successful transfer window, would still make United a far more interesting side because that means Williams could potentially move over to the right um, as backup for AWB. Um, and then United have a bit more balance in the fullback areas uh, from attacking perspective. Um, and potentially even try uh, a three-four-three, which I've been an advocate for for a long time, and and play uh, Basaka um, on the right of that back three with um, Williams and hopefully a new left back as the wing back. So it would give Solskjaer a lot more options and depth that he desperately needs going forward. But um, you know, I'm, I'm I've got to be hopeful because that's all I've got now at the moment. Which 
<laughs> five days left, you know. But you know, we've 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 talked about United in in every podcast we've done so far, and and my um my ambitions have have decreased each time. But you know, <laughs> the only thing I would say is I really am impressed with Van de Beek. Um, I think he's far more polished mm. in the final third than either Fernandez or Pogba. I mean, last night that assist. I mean, obviously it was very simple, but United have been getting the simple things wrong in the final third. Um, and he's just he protects the ball a lot better. He's far more incisive. He doesn't waste possession at all. You know, Pogba and Fernandez, their passing completion is around kind of the mid 60%. Whereas Van de Beek, he's far more protective of the ball. He's far more incisive, makes great ones into the box. So I, I do think that is a great addition to United, but I felt he was supposed to be kind of one of four or five signings. And now it's looking like it'll probably be one of two, which after getting third place last season, which was for me, an overachievement for Solskjaer, especially where they were in January. It's very disappointing. But, um, you know, unfortunately, it is what it is. Phil, any recent transfers or prospective transfers over the next couple of days taking your eye? Um, one that I know we were we were talking about in the group chat um, that looked like was going to be interesting was uh, Cuisance to Leeds from Bayern Munich. But... Um, German media reporting that despite Cuisance being in, in Leeds to complete the deal, it's, fell, it's fallen through tonight. And um, Now, how that actually sits by the time people hear this, I'm not sure, but it looks like it, it, it's done. Uh, he's a re- really exciting kind of number eight sort of midfielder and um, left Munzingladbach under a bit of a cloud, kind of forced through a move t- to Munich and then wanted to leave t- to Leeds to, to get a bit of game time because he was, despite Bayern losing uh, Thiago and and uh, maybe losing another couple of midfielders, he was still a bit down the pecking order, but uh, unclear as yet as to why it's fallen through. But it would have been a really interesting signing, uh, and would have continued a good business from Leeds this summer. Like they've, they've added some interesting players. It uh, won't surprise anyone that uh, a club that hired Marcelo Bielsa and uh, has pretty extensive dealings with the San Francisco 49ers have a have an interesting uh, and engaging scouting department. So they've they've been some interesting pickups there from Leeds, and um, but that's one bit of business that. I would have liked to see it happen, and uh, just now, but things. Just on that, Phil, um, and I'm sure the picture will be a lot clearer by the time the podcast is out. But according to David Ornstein, um, he failed his medical, um, so oh. that, kind of, that uh, reporting that the test showed injury problems, and that the French international is flying back tonight. So maybe a little bit of a, a, a Nabil Fakir situation where. They get him in, they realise he's kind of some underlying issue that isn't going to go away anytime soon or may crop up semi-regularly and I suppose for the price they were paying um, kind of iced their, their interest pretty quickly. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's it's a bit of a strange one. I mean, uh, like Bayern got him at a song. I mean, they only paid 10 million euro for him, which was a staggering deal at the time. He was he had a very good season with Mönchengladbach that year. He's He's one of these kind of Modern midfielders reminds me a bit, a bit of Mark Rocco. He can track back, decent tackle, very good on the ball. Um, he did have a lot of niggling injuries last season, but nothing I felt was too serious. I just felt really Byron's depth was a bit too much for him to get regular game time. Uh, and they were going to include a buyback clause. Um, so it's a bit of a shame that we don't get to see him in the league because I felt that that could have been one of, actually one of the best signings in the window. Um, if you look at Leeds business, um, you know, Diego Lorente, uh, Robin Kosh, as opposed to <laughs> be careful of the pronunciation there. 
Um, obviously signed Costa on a, on a permanent deal. I think Rodrigo was very overpriced for what they paid for him. But again, you know, Spanish international, a good striker to have. I don't think Leeds expected Bamford to start the season as well as he's done. But again, they were one of the better clubs in the transfer window this season. And I felt Cuisance would have really just knitted the whole thing together for them. So I think that's that's a big loss for them and the league in general. Um, apparently, there were reports tonight that he was, you know, pictured in his jersey and everything like that. So the deal was done. It was ready to be signed for twenty million, um, and obviously he's failed, failed his medical. So that's a bit of a shame. Daniel Dames, part two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, a shame he didn't go to Leeds and James. To be honest with you, but anyway. <laughs> I know. Kind of a loan signing that could be quietly one of the, the better bits of business this summer. Um, Ross Barkley to Aston Villa. And we don't have Keane on to, uh, to to wax lyrical at the moment about Barkley, but I'm sure he's, uh, he's lighter with that one, Phil. Yeah, I mean, Villa have actually moved on a good bit. Like, they needed it, right? Because they stayed up kind of with a bit of luck and with an incorrect decision, actually, as it turns out from... Uh, from VAR or Golan Tech rather um, last season so they needed a good summer but like Grealish signing the deal is obviously massive Ollie Watkins I think will turn out to be really good business um, that was a really good Brentford side he was part of and uh, knows how to score, go- score goals and if you can get service from Grealish and begin it'll look quite it'll look uh, I think he'll look quite good rather uh, and like you said Barkley I mean he's one of those players um, loads and loads of promise young for Everton kind of lost his way a bit. The Chelsea deal kind of came out of nowhere at the time because he, he had been a little bit away from that absolute peak that he'd had at Everton. But for a side like Villa, bottom half of the league, who looking for a bit of creative spark, um, I think he could be a really good sign. And he might get a bit of love there as well um, from the club. Obviously not from the fans at the minute because there's just nobody in the ground. But he'll be an important player there in a way he hasn't been probably since his early days at Everton. Um, so yeah, Villa haven't needed a good summer, have gotten one, I think. And especially considering the teams around them. Yeah, I think Villa have actually, you know, there's this obsession window. But if you look at what they've done, they're probably the one of the few teams in the league who've actually improved in the areas they've needed to improve. You know, you felt that they needed to get a stronger centre forward. I think Watkins is going to be a great signing. I know 27 million is very pricey, but as we've seen, down the years, many championship players have come through and done really well in the Premier League. I think it's one of, you know, the best sources of players at the moment. I mean, even from a United perspective, I'd be all over Ben Rama from Brentford, for example, as a as a backup option for right wing. But if you look at what Villa have done, you know, they need to improve centre forward. They've done that. The goalkeeper with Martinez. I mean, I would have made him Arsenal's number one this season, to be honest. Yeah. Matt Cash at right back, excellent signing for 14 million. Triore, he's worth a punt at 16 million at 25 years of age. Um, yeah. didn't have the best time at Leon, but was very good at Ajax. He's, you know, I don't think he meant that goal during the week, but <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you debate that one. And Barkley, really, at 26 years of age, you know, in a midfield with potentially McGinn um, and Jack Grealish is a very exciting signing. Somebody who really needs to kickstart his career again. I think there's definitely places in that England squad for a player like him. Um, and he'll be determined to make a good go of it after a pretty mixed spell at Chelsea. He actually has 33 England caps already, which really shocked me when I read that during the week. It just shows um, how weak England have been in that kind of attacking midfield position in that last few years, although there are a lot of players coming through now, um, as long as they don't break quarantine. Um, <laughs> um, so for me, Villa have had 
definitely the most impressive transfer window. You look at other teams and where they needed to improve, and I don't think they've done that as effectively as Villa. Even Chelsea, mm. I felt they needed a defensive midfielder um, and a proper centre-back um, far more than they needed you know, to improve kind of in the number 10 or striker position, for example. They might still sign Declan Rice. They're definitely going to go back in for him this week, but it's very last-minute stuff, whereas Villa just seemed to address the areas that they needed to throughout the summer and everybody's ready to go for the new season and it's not really too surprising that they've started as well as they have so I think there's they deserve huge credit uh, for what they've done um, and definitely for me the most impressive team in the transfer window Two clean sheets from two games is um, very unvilla-like considering how bad they were last year um, I had pencils Newcastle is my kind of side in the bottom half of the league that uh Kind of on paper, had a pretty decent window with Wilson and Fraser, but I think um, I think Aston Villa are definitely that side at the moment. Um, one big transfer that could happen over the next couple of days, um, it's been the talk of the past week or so, is Hussein Awar from um, from Leon to Arsenal. Um, Arsenal's business, I mean, they've signed um, Gabriel and William Saliba uh, for twenty seven million pounds each. I think they've defensively they've been a, a bit of a crab shoot. Um, with, with the players that they've got in, but otherwise, when you look at William on a free transfer, um, Kibayas on, on, on another season's loan, I think adding a, a player of ours quality uh, would be a huge signing, um, especially considering how good they look under Arteta at the moment. I think they're absolutely crying out for somebody like him. And um, now, like if you read the kind of the French press, it doesn't seem to be as optimistic maybe as the English press surprise surprise but if they were to get him I think it'd be a great signing for them um, because if you look at, at how they performed uh, against Liverpool earlier in the week um, admirable as it was they were crying and they improved tenfold when Ceballos came on if you had yeah. another creative force like that who can link um, it, like it, it'll move them on a good because like you said they've, they've strengthened the defence in an area that Arteb has already made them more organised in in attack, they're already pretty well stocked, maybe overstocked um, with like young talent and kind of peak age talent. Uh, but that midfield does look a little light, especially on the creative end. So he'd be an amazing sign if they can get it over the line. Seems like it's a bit of work to do for them. Uh, but I'd say it'll be all guns blazing to try and get it done. Yeah, I mean, with Leon, you've always got a chance because their president is just <laughs> <laughs> hoarding yeah. players all over Europe all the time. You know, he was disgusted with Liverpool when they pulled out of the Fekker deal, for example, and he was their captain and their best player. So, <laughs> I mean, that tells you where his mind is at. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that get over the line. I think the problem for Arsenal could be trying to find somebody for Guendouzi. He's mm. clearly just out of favour at the moment. But I'd agree with what you said when Ceballos came on. They were just a, a different team altogether. I mean, a pivot of El Nene and Jacka in a 3-4-3 just mm. isn't going to work for Arteta, really. Um, and our... our would really tie the whole thing together. They were linked with Thomas Partey as well, but I, I can't see Atletico letting him go. Um, obviously, he has the release clause, but reports were Arsenal were trying to negotiate below that. So I think that ship has sailed, but our is really phenomenal talent. Um, if if Arsenal could tie it all together, um, it would make them an entirely different team to what they're producing at the moment. So... Um, from you know a personal perspective as a United fan, I don't want to see Arsenal strengthening, but 
I'd love to see a player like that in the league. I just think he's one of those you know, far more technical than Undumbele, for example, who is actually mm. very good on the ball uh, and was excellent for Leon, even though his fitness has been a big problem at Spurs. But I think our is kind of a level above that again. Um, you know, almost that Iniesta mold, if you like. And, you know, there's a lot of players who just aren't like him at the moment. Um, so I'd really love to see him in the league, to be honest. And I think there's a chance that, that could get done just because it's Leon. We're joined by sports writer and co-host of the Main Road Ramble podcast, Jor Deegan. Hi, Jor. Hope you're well. Hi, Kevin. Thanks, really, for having me on. So we wanted to talk a little bit about City um, and where they are coming into what kind of feels like a, a huge season for the club and for Pep. It's his fifth year at the team, um, a milestone he hasn't reached anywhere else. They've bridged the gap in the Premier League points-wise um, compared to what Liverpool achieved last season. There's the elusive Champions League title that they kind of failed to, to win again last year, having lost to Leon over the summer. Jur, I suppose... We could start with the mood around the club. It's easy to paint a picture of doom and gloom after a big loss, but is, is there any kind of frustration or anxiousness maybe amongst the fan base at the moment? Um, yeah, I suppose at the moment I think there's a little bit of a little bit of frustration. Um, I think it mainly bogs down to the kind of what we perceive that the lack of signings in key areas to the team. So obviously in the in the, the last couple of days they've they've you know, plugged the hole at centre-half, which we badly needed. And I think just fans are getting a little bit frustrated the fact that there hasn't been a left-back brought in, which has been a glaring issue in the side for, like, I suppose, since Pep's been at the club. Um, it, it's a position that they've kind of seemed to neglect quite a bit with, you know, Fabian Dell plugged in there, then Zinchenko. And it, it's something that I feel the club has got a bit arrogant in, in the fact that they've they've won a couple of league titles and a couple of cups with, with players potentially playing out of position. And I think maybe they thought they might get away with it again. Um, I think that's where the, the frustration bugs kind of comes down to at the moment with the club. And obviously, it's it's kind of unusual because I think people were expecting um, when we went to Molyneux on the opening day of the season to perhaps not be the game that we'd be thinking of, that we, like we suppose we thought we'd probably get beat, uh, beaten in that one and, and pick up points in the home game. But it's kind of worked out the opposite way. And as you said... The, the game the weekend against Leicester was was a bit of a, a disaster all around. The, like you said, the transfer transfer window has been spent trying to shore up the defence um, with the additions of Nate Naki and Ruben Diaz this week. The funds spent on defenders has been fairly astronomical on during the the Pep era. Is there any kind of concern that the club have struggled to bed down a consistent back four? Um, you mentioned left back. Uh, I presume. By by your your thoughts there that Benjamin Mendy hasn't lived up to the hype, um, the, the centre back pairing has kind of struggled to. Uh, There's been a bit rotative, um, especially since company left. So has, has there been any kind of concerns really that the club have struggled so much when it comes to to buying defenders? Yeah, I think when when Pep first started with the club, it was something that he had to address early. And obviously after his fourth season with the club, you could tell it was it was an agent backline. You had Alexander Kolarov. You know, you had Gail Clichy, Bakari Sanya, who were all coming to the kind of end of their Premier League careers as it was. But um, they've obviously then gone out and spent 
I think 200 million on fullbacks where they brought in Mendy Walker um, and then obviously lately they brought in Cancelo and stuff like that, which hasn't worked out and it seems to be like Danilo obviously of course as well who left the club in the summer um, so fullbacks seem to be the, the key one where people tend to focus in on when they talk about the big money um, and I think that's that's allowed because they have other than perhaps Walker the others have been have been so poor and mm. it kind of comes down to a couple of things I think the Mendy one is is an issue because obviously he's had a, a, I think it's two or three now re- recurring yeah. issues and like I, you can't really legislate for a player doing that twice over a period of three years it's just maybe it's, it's frustration I suppose that we know ourselves he's not going to get back to the the same level that he showed when he was with Monaco and the same level he showed especially against us in the Champions League when when we were competing against them. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt it's a lot of money and it's easy to say as a fan to go out and spend more and, you know, at a club like City where money doesn't seem to be an option uh, or doesn't seem to be a problem, sorry, um, you think surely you can just go out and get another one and I know it's not as easy as that but I think like Walker's been brilliant since he- he come in, so I wouldn't have any. I wouldn't have any doubts with him. I think the Cancelo one has, has been a bit slow to get off the ground, but no, I think Mendy's not going to get back to the same form he was, and I think that's the, that's the area that we feel I think should have been addressed. In terms of departures, then um, losing David Silva, Silva um, to Real Sociedad on a, on a at the end of his contract, um, obviously a huge blow. I mean. Obviously, he's getting up on age, but it's hard to replace that much uh, experience in the squad and the number of titles that he's won throughout the years. Um, do you feel like the club should have kind of made more of an effort to replace him, or is a player like maybe Phil Foden kind of coming going to going to come into his own now as a more regular starter? Yeah, I think Foden's the one to that 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 should be able to come in and. I don't want to say replace David Silva because listen, it's not it's not a an easy task to do. He's he's been unbelievable. He's the best player I've ever seen play for City. Um, there'll be Colin Bell fans out there who will have a go at me for that one, but <laughs> unfortunately, I wasn't alo- I wasn't really a lawyer for for that, so um, I was only a nipper at that stage. But no, listen, David Silva, I think is irreplaceable. But if you have a homegrown player and especially someone who loves the club as much as Foden, you'd hope he'd be the one to kind of kick on and, and come into that role. I think there was far glaring, I think there was glaring issues elsewhere that potentially could have been addressed and I think we're going to move on to it in a while but up front we seem to be quite short at the moment as well and um, I, I think there's enough creative heads around around the club that like between them, if they're not going to reach David, level, or David Silva levels on their own, as a collective they should be able to. Jared, it's uh, Phil here. Um, we're into year five now of, of Pep at City, and obviously that's longer than he's ever spent at a club before. Um, and he's tend to have left his previous clubs, most especially and obviously Barcelona, uh, at a kind of point of a, a, a kind of a, a breaking point or kind of a, a point of exhaustion almost, where um, yeah. both himself and the players are maybe glad of a break. Um, do you think there is anything in the idea of? the kind of pressure maybe starting to tell with Pep in, in year five or do you think that's just something that people were always going to pick up on the second things maybe went a little wrong for, for, for City this year yeah I, th- I think it's a bit of both to be honest um, I think he's obviously a very intense man to work to work for and, and under um, you, you can see I don't know whether he's seen the documentary that was released at City a while back and you can see kind of he strikes you as a man who gets about four or five hours of sleep and he just has this whiteboard up in the background that he's constantly constantly going, going to about the ne- next week's game plan and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, I do think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I think 
there was obviously a couple of reports that came out post uh, Lyon when they got knocked out this season in the Champions League. And there were like players who were were kind of a bit frustrated that like they've been playing it for example a four three three all season, and then we we tend to change our game for the opposition, which we've done on countless times, especially in the Champions League when I think games going back to Anfield a couple of years ago when he, he played Gundogan right wing, and then you have Spurs away and he does mad stuff and that as well, and you're kind of looking going, I, I don't I don't really see the understanding in it when you think you should be good enough to play your own style and and go out and. You know, especially beat a team like Leon, which we think we all know City were probably good enough to just on the day, whatever happened, the the head seat seemed to go a bit. And um, for Pep, it's an unusual position, I think, for fans, for people who like cover the club, and and also for people within the club, because obviously, as you said, it's new territory for Pep. He he he's never gone beyond gone beyond uh, four years and are into his fifth season with a club. Um, and I think for me, it's potentially, maybe that's why the club hasn't gone out and got signings that a lot of people think we need because they might be saying, well, if he's not going to be around to, you know, like to nurture these young players who are buying, then we don't really want to go out and fork 50, 60, 70 million on a, a new sentiment failure for the sake of it. Yeah. When for this season, we think we've got enough that can maybe push on. So it's going to be interesting to see whether he does sign a new contract and I know what you mean about the breaking point issue and to be fair like a lot of people are honing in on the Champions League stuff with, with Pep but uh, I struggle myself to criticise someone who's come in and you know had record record breaking uh, seasons in the Premier League won a domestic treble for the first time uh, I think it's very difficult to, to criticise that while yeah you, you probably would like to do a little bit better on the European level mm. Um, one of the ways, obviously, that, that things can get freshened up in, if things are getting a bit stale is in the backroom team. And Pep had that forced on him last year um, when when Mikel Arteta left to take the Arsenal job. Um, not, that, not to say that Pep needed Arteta, but it kind of coincided with City's worst run of form under Guardiola, or certainly since that first season. How big of an impact do you think Arteta's departure has had on Pep's City? Yeah, I think more so on the players, particularly. Um, there's the plenty of reports out there. I think I think it's well known that Arteta was the one who kind of took the sessions and stuff like that on the training ground. Um, he obviously built up a great rapport with a lot of the the young lads, and you know, oh, he seemed to have some sort of bond with a lot of the, a lot of the players there. For Pep, for Pep himself, I'm not sure it changes too much. Um, he obviously brought in, I'll probably pronounce this incorrectly, but he brought in Juan Malilo. Um, I hope he's done a good, a good enough job at that. Um, <laughs> now he brought in him, former, you know, former coach of Sociedad and, mm. you know, a, a general, like an, an intelligent man when it comes to actual football and tactics of football. So I don't know if that would have affected. It might have affected the players, though, you know, communication with, with him in training and stuff like that, because I think Pep tends to let his assistants kind of, not all the time, but, you know, oversee the training ground aspect of the club. So I'd say more so had an effect on the squad than it actually did on Pep himself when it came to Arteta's leaving. Obviously, we've seen how well he's done since he left, so he was obviously a bit of class to have around the club. Jarrett's end of here. Um, I'm just would like to get your thoughts on the role of Rodri uh, in midfield. Um, when he joined, obviously, I felt he was the perfect defensive midfielder for Pep. Had spent a year under Diego Simeone, very disciplined, great on the ball, good tackler, um, good shot. But if you look at the goals, the type of goals they're conceding, and pretty much all five goals from Leicester at the weekend came from players picking up the ball 
from deep positions and just being allowed to run at the centre-backs, which has been a huge problem for City, really, in the last two seasons. Fernandinho obviously doesn't have the legs anymore. De Bruyne is usually caught either on the right side or far up the pitch. Rodri doesn't seem to be really cleaning up behind that midfield as much as he should be. But I feel like his impact on the side hasn't really gotten much scrutiny. Um, mm. What are your thoughts in in terms of his impact on the side and really the the lack of cover he appears to be giving the centre backs at the moment? Yeah, I think I think it's a difficult one for with Rodri. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, he's at the moment he's not doing what he was brought in to do. Um, I think we all, I know, I still have high hopes from. I think listen, I think he's a quality footballer. It, He's probably the closest, uh, this might seem like a, a, an outrageous kind of statement, but I feel like he's the closest kind of player in that role we've seen to Busquets in terms of how he plays with the ball. And if he can if he can start to, I suppose, develop his reading of the game a little bit better, I think we're going to see a wonderful, wonderful player. The issue, with, I think, Rodri has been is, and I feel, I feel a bit difficult about it because he, he kind of gets put as a scapegoat at times because of the fact that he's meant to be the one shielding. But I think he lost out on a massive year that could have been quite beneficial to him because of the injury we had to Laporte. That meant Fernandinho had to drop back into the back line. I don't feel Rodri was bought to play nearly as many games or minutes as he did last season. I think he was, you know, this year should have been his, maybe his first big year in that in that role. I, th- I think maybe he was brought in to learn off Fernandinho because Fernandinho's been so good for a while. Um, I say a while, sorry, he's been so good for a, v- a very long time. But I think maybe Rodri's suffering because he didn't get to work, work maybe more closely with him or in a, it, with him in the centre of the park. Because um, you, you've seen the first couple of games we've started with, Rodri and Fernandinho have started together. The first game against Wolves, they look good. And to be fair, Fernandinho got brought off after 50 minutes the weekend. It was one all up until that. Once Fernandinho went off and Rodri was left on his own, it seemed to kind of fall apart. Um, he's the one thing I was very critical of Rodri was prior to this season, and we're still seeing parts of it. He he tends to get caught very high up pressing the ball, which, as we should know, that that that's not what his job should be in this team. He tends to press at the wrong times, and I think his game management just seems to be a bit a little bit off. If you're paying sixty, seventy million for someone, though, you need to learn, and you need to learn quickly in the Premier League especially, because teams are going to come on to you. Teams are going to press you. And if they don't, then they're going to soak it, up, soak it up, soak it up, and wait for you to make a mistake. And that's generally what tends to happen with City. We make a mistake, he's too far He's too far up the pitch, and then we've got inept people at the back who haven't been able to deal with it. One thing that really interests me about City is, you know, they've not really had a traditional number nine since maybe Negredo, certainly since Zeko. Yeah. And... You know, the quality of delivery they have, especially from De Bruyne in the wide areas, but also you think Mendy, Cancelo, if when he does play Walker. And yet the only target men they seem to have are very similar in Aguero and, and Gabriel Jesus. I really think they've lacked a plan B in the last few years. Um, are you surprised that they haven't tried to go back in for, you know, somebody similar to Zeko, like a, a Weghorst from uh, Wolfsburg, for example, that type of traditional number nine who would just clean up with the quality of delivery that um, City uh, hit into the box? Or do you feel that just goes against really what Pep is trying to do at the club? I mean, he's not really had one since, you know, maybe Lewandowski at Bayern. Yeah. Obviously, Zlatan didn't work out at Barcelona for him. Do you feel that he's just as totally against that at this moment or it's just not something he's too interested in? 
Yeah, I just think he, 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 I definitely fully agree with you that we've we've not had somebody since. I know Legrado was decent actually when he was at the club, but I'd go back to as, as far as Jacko for the type of striker that I feel you're, you know, trying to talk about. Um, I think air plan B, which is, it just seems so strange to me that if things aren't going well, then it, it seems to be crosses into the box. And like usually, you know, anybody who's watched City knows it's all about getting the wingers to the boy line, getting pullbacks for your either your striker or your, your, your winger from the opposite side coming in, whether it be Sterling or whether it was Sam at the time and when it's not going right City tend to just lump I don't mean lump balls into the box they're still getting they're getting crosses in but they're never very good like and I, and I don't know whether that's because we don't have a kind of an out and out target man as you'd call him or a prolific centre forward like a traditional style one that the crosses maybe look a little worse than they actually are but I think City have kind of because teams I think a lot of credit has to go to the other teams in the Premier League we haven't had to have a plan B until the start of last, or well, you know, start of last season since, since Liverpool's kind of rise because City were able to, the year before, were kind of able to just base your, your plan A is Aguero. And when Aguero's working on, you don't need a plan B sort of thing. Um, they brought Jesus in, he started like a house on fire when he first came to the club. And um, again, wasn't, didn't really change anything in, in the way we played. We still kind of went with a 4 3 3, and it just kind of added to the pace on the counter attack when, when we were out of possession. Um, I know there were there was a couple of murmurs around the transfer window for someone like um, Jovic uh, off of Real Madrid because things weren't working out for him. Again, don't know if he'd be the right... The, the problem I think with City have is that when Aguero's fit, he plays. So can you afford to go out and you know, spend 60, 70 million on, on a, you know, a big, big man up front and then he's not going to play if Aguero's fit? It's something that they probably should have thought of coming into the last couple of seasons with Aguero age, and now he's starting to pick up a couple more injuries. He's coming into the final contract of his club uh, at the club, and, and I think personally, I think City are now holding out. Um, obviously, I think I think Erling Haaland with with Borussia Dortmund next year is, you know, his release clause is, is eligible, and his contract I think is up at the end of next year. So, I think that's their long term plan. Um, but I am still quite shocked that they haven't brought in some form of backup up front, whether it be, as you mentioned, a, a, a target man style or, or at least someone who, I don't mean Danny Ings, but someone of that. You know, I, I, I thought City potentially could have um, made a move for Callum Wilson, who went to Newcastle. I thought he'd have been perfect. And if you're going to pick him up for 20 million, I think he would have got bags bags full of goals in this team. So, yeah, it is, it is something that has been highlighted. And obviously, young, young Liam Delap is coming through now. He scored last week in his debut against uh, Bournemouth, and then obviously was brought on in the, you know, the defeat by Leicester the weekend. He didn't really get he hit the bar with a header, I think, but he didn't really get too much of a chance. So he he's got the physique. It might just be a little bit early, and they probably are going to have to go down the same route as they they did with Foden with him. It feels like only yesterday that we were um, watching Rory Lap fling balls <laughs> yes. into <laughs> balls into the into the Arsenal box. Um, so it's pretty mad that uh, his son is already playing. Um, I'm and playing like said, for the complete opposite style of football. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, like you said, he he seems to have the physique. Um, he's six foot one. He you know for 17 years of age, he um, yeah. he's certainly on on the right track. Um, I don't think we're going to be seeing him in a in a in a green shirt unfortunately anytime soon. Um, <laughs> on that topic, there's a couple of um, it's a couple of Irish players. Um, Hanging about in, in Manchester City, obviously Gavin Bizzuno is out on loan, um, and is probably not too far off the uh, the full squad, the the senior squad. Um, but one guy who's kind of been 
uh, spoken about as, as very, very highly rated is Joe Hodge in the midfield. Um, have you heard much about him? Have you know? Have you kind of any idea of, of what his um, his path is, if any, towards uh, the senior side? Yeah, I, I, listen, I, I, he's a super player. Um, I've seen him a couple of times playing for for the Ireland, the the Irish kind of under. He was on the nineteens under Stephen Kenny or um, or under twenty ones potentially. But he, he's playing a couple of years like out of his depth sort of thing and um he it's funny we're talking about the kind of Rodri role that seems to be what what Hodge is kind of he plays in that position he's very very good on the ball looks very secure is able to break the lines um and he, he is quite he's quite quite a short guy so he will need to mm-hmm. kind of maybe you know develop a bit of power and a bit of pay, I, I don't want to even say pace but once he's got legs he, he should be fine um, I'd imagine. Listen, if City think a, play, a young lad is good enough, they generally get get a chance somewhere down the line, unless something like a Sancho bid or a Brahim Diaz bid comes in for someone who's not played any first team football. Then I don't see any reason they're going to let him go. I'd say he'll be it'll be you know the sort of that most clubs see League Cup action, the likes of what Tommy Doyle is at at the moment, yeah. the way Phil Foden started. But I think there is high hopes for Hodge, um, and I think. If he was to be brought through, it would be great for not only the Irish team, but I think for City himself, because he, he is a lovely, lovely footballer. Good stuff. Um, in terms of outlook for the season, the Champions League draw was made tonight. Um, Manchester City drawn in with Porto, Olympiacos and Marseille. Um, and we had a chat um, before we came on about the Champions League. And I suppose on paper, it's it's been a fairly kind uh, draw for City yeah, absolutely. How many times have you said that before, though? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, listen. I think I think it is a favourable draw. I mean, especially going to the likes of Marseille and, and Olympiacos, if there's no mm. fans in the ground, um, mm. I, I think that plays a big, big part. So, no, listen. I don't think City will have any issues getting out of group. It's it's just what we tend to do after that is the problem. Would <laughs> um, you? No, I I think listen. I think they have to have a chance again. Last year, like the last couple of seasons, they've been tipped up as favourites. This year it probably won't be, which is probably going to suit them a little bit more because you know the pressure will still be on, no doubt. But um, listen, it's a competition that we want to win. Everybody at the club and the hierarchy are desperate to win. I wouldn't say fans are as desperate as the, the hierarchy mm-hmm. and maybe the coach are. But it, listen, it, it, it's a trophy we haven't won. It's something we want. We want to aim for. And this year. I don't think you're ever going to have a better year than when there's no fans in the ground because if you have to go away from home, it, it makes it a lot easier. Jerry, do you think if he did win it, Pep would go back to New York for another sabbatical and, and be done with City? Yeah, yeah, probably. But the, the, he's very he's a he's a bit of a weird one, there, Pep. Um, you, <laughs> you just I, I, personally, I don't I don't see where he's going to go after he leaves City if he does go anywhere at all. Um, a lot of people like tend to tend to mention the national thing, but with, with the kind of whole, you know, the Catalan situation there, I don't know whether that would be something he he'd want to um, pursue, you know. And a lot of people mention Juventus and stuff. Listen, I think City's been the club that's been altered. It's been altered for him. Everything was put in place for him. So, although he doesn't look it, he generally, I think he actually seems happy at the club and. Uh, I'd love him to sign a new contract. Do I think he will? Probably not. But I think if he was to win the Champions League, he'd probably go. He, I think that would be one he could bring into the media, have a nice little go on his way out the door as well, because they've been fairly on his back about it, the English media. Good stuff, Joe. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining this evening. No problem, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thanks a million, lads. Thanks, Kevin.